Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of History Spelunkers, the show where we take a deep dive into an obscure topic from history, tell y'all about what I find. It's me, Kelvin, again, he, him pronouns, and back again this week for part two of our last episode on Theodore Roosevelt is Ryan again. That's me again, he, him pronouns. And uh, it's part two of the Theodore Roosevelt. If you haven't listened to part one, go back and listen to it. But we'll jump right back into the episode. What, so what is the first thing that you would do? You're president of the United States. You've just retired. They've done the inauguration for the next guy. What is the first thing you do? The first thing I would do is probably find whatever ranch that I own at this point in the middle of nowhere and just be away from everyone for a while. Yeah, get away. You're such a a public figure. You've been around. You've been toured around you're talking you know to the entire nation and all this and all eyes are on you and now you have some rest <laughs> so just yeah. pass out in a remote location for however long yeah it's uh it very much that's basically what a lot of people do they go home wherever home is for them i think only two presidents stayed for any amount of time in washington dc after their presidency ended and that was Woodrow Wilson because he was going to be dead in a few months anyways and the Obamas stayed in DC because their kids were still in school but even the Obamas like right after they went on like a vacation to French Polynesia or with Oprah Winfrey or whatever you know so they go off have a fun time like most people do Well, less than a month after Roosevelt left office, uh, he went on a safari expedition to East Africa in order to gather specimens for the Smithsonian Museum. Less than a month. Yeah, like, like two, three weeks after the next guy is inaugurated. How long was he planning that in the Oval Office of, like, once I get out of here, I can go off to East Asia where nobody's going to be checking on me. You know, I'll figure it out. Like, this is something he was planning forever. Yeah, it, cool. it, I mean... Next guy's in, I'm good. Yeah, it, it was very much... He was working in coordination with the Smithsonian, getting all the plans set up, like, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to go. And so he did. And they went to... Uh, what is now Kenya, and kind of did a safari. They went to Lake Victoria, up the Nile River, into modern-day Sudan. So that kind of region in East Africa. And he took his 19-year-old son, Kermit, with him. Uh, which, you know, fun vacation trip with your dad, I guess. I, guess so. I mean, not I guess, that would be a fun trip. But, uh, yeah, he he was doing kind of some diplomatic stuff because Africa at this time was all colonies and whatnot. Yeah, he's 
going around doing the safari, collecting specimens, and he ultimately wrote about this journey in a book called African Game Trails. And uh, what is, it's a pretty standard safari as far as what I've been able to gather. Uh, But what was exceptional about it was the sheer number of specimens that the party was able to collect for the Smithsonian. Now, when I say collect specimens, I mostly mean hunting and taxidermying animals. But, you know, there's also like plants and insects being collected. But yeah, I'm sure that wasn't his job on the safari. Yeah. So would you like to take a guess at how many animals the expedition gathered in the less than one year long journey. Um, oh, geez. Um, my brain, animal wise, I feel like it's around 50 of different ones. Like, I don't know if they ever got any repeats, but just 57, 57 different ones. My, is my complete 57 guess. different animals or 57 well, just specimens? I would say 57 different animals somehow. I don't know. Are there even that many different animals? <laughs> Okay, um... That's my guess, but they probably had like 300 or something, like, total. <laughs> okay, uh... You're, you're a little low. Uh... A little, oh god, is it? Okay. So, the correct answer for animals, total number of animals collected, uh, was 23,100. Okay. There were about 4,000 birds, 2,000 reptiles and amphibians, 500 fish, and another 4,800 mammals, some odd. All right, you can just cut out that part where I made my guess. (laughs) I'm just going to, I kind of forget that there's so many different, like, subspecies and, like, slight differentiations. That's where it. Because my brain was like, oh, well, there's people long ago, they were like, that's a bird. That looks, you know, there's variations of the bird, but that's a bird. And so my head just went to like, they got like types. But I guess they were going for the minutiae of everything. Yeah. Um, Okay. So with that number in mind now of all the plants and amphibians and insects and all of that now, what is the number of animals that you think Theodore Roosevelt and his son Kermit personally shot? So you said it's about 23,000 so total? They had a total of 23,000 specimens. I'll tell you, Theodore and Kermit, dramatically lower, but it's going to be more than your 50 guess, you know. Okay, okay, alright. You don't have to keep bringing that up. Okay. Uh, <laughs> I would say between the two of them, there were probably about 5,000 Okay, of those 23. They, they, together, they personally shot 512 animals. So. Oh, that was it? Yeah. Um, oh, come on. Yeah, come on. it was, uh, he kept, he wrote down like an itemized list in his book. And in that list, there were 
between the two of them. Uh, 17 lions, three leopards, seven cheetahs, nine hyenas, 11 elephants, 20 rhinos, eight hippos, 17 warthogs, 29 zebras, nine giraffes, four crocodiles, and then, you know, birds and whatnot otherwise. Okay, see, so, so why do you need 17 lions to take the Smithsonian? It's, you know, it's, it's that's a different lion than the last one. Uh, but, oh, yeah, uh-huh. Yeah, well, I'll get into that in a second, but uh, yeah, the the sheer scale of this expedition, in total, it took about eight years to mount and catalog all of the specimens and send them off to the appropriate museums. Yeah, just imagine the unloading once they got home. It was like, all right, so we're done. Yeah, like 300 or so, like I said. Like, we're done. Yeah, okay. Well, there's another shipload. Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, here's... <laughs> no, that was just the uh, that was just the bird pile, so... Mm-hmm. So, yeah, a That's lot of people thing. hear these numbers, and they might critique, you know, that, uh, you know, big game hunting isn't a super popular pastime in the modern world, uh, especially considering that a lot of these animals are threatened or endangered today. But back then, you know, you, you hear them go around shooting all these animals. And if that's your opinion that you don't like any of that, you know, good for you. That's your opinion. Uh, but to put it into some context, One, uh, there were more of these animals back then, so therefore there was more of them for them to shoot. And two, uh, Roosevelt definitely was not the worst offender whenever it comes to big game hunting, because he and Kermit together, you know, they personally shot 512. There were some hunters that single-handedly over their lifetimes shot, like, one guy shot over a thousand elephants and there are several of these guys going around in Africa doing this. And, but like the purpose of why does a museum need 17 lions? Well, the thought was that the museums needed to kill like the rationale in their minds was that, the museums needed to kill and add these specimens to their collections, you know, do dissect them, you know, collect all sorts of scientific data from these creatures, add them into their collections, and, because that would be the only way that a mass amount of people would be able to experience them, because most people didn't get the chance to go to a safari in East Africa or whatever. And it's, we have to collect the animal. We have to kill them before someone else does. And before the animals go extinct. It, oh yes. The perfect, the perfect uh, the, thought process. The thought of conservation, while it was sort of around, it was 
not directed in the same way that we would understand it as a modern audience. It was, these animals are going extinct. We don't know why, so we should kill this one and make sure that we at least have a specimen so that way, you know, people will come and see our museum or whatever. Yeah, yeah, I, I definitely could see that that was the thought process, you know. And it, it's, I mean, it, you always make out people to be really like, oh, well, those people back then were just stupid and weren't thinking and all this. And it's, hindsight's twenty twenty, but, you know. Yeah, and like Roosevelt himself, yeah, he's a big macho guy. He likes hunting. But in the book that he writes about this, he actually kind of goes off on like the people that are killing thousands of elephants. Just that's all they do is go out and hunt. Um, he 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 very much despises big game hunting just for the sake of big game hunting. Um, he he was behind like yes. For science, if we need to collect a few specimens or if we need to eat on these expeditions, you know, we got to go hunt for that. But he was very much against the excess of, I'm just wanting, I just want to add another lion to mount in my house or whatever. Yeah. So, you know, not trying to get Theodore Roosevelt canceled or whatever. He has plenty of other things that can do that for him. You just factor yeah. that in. Oh, yeah. He's a complicated dude. But yeah, that, that was his trip to Africa. But he went on another very famous trip in his retirement. This time after he lost the election of 1912. And it was probably even more dramatic well, it was definitely more dramatic, but it was also more, um, oh, what's the word I'm thinking of? Uh, consequential, I guess you could say. It, it like had more purposes behind it other than I'm just going to go out, okay. have a fun yeah. time and go hunting. Yeah, um, I see what you mean. And uh, it had a much greater impact on his personal life and that's something to take into account but after he lost the 1912 election he decided that he would go on a trip to brazil and some of the other nations of south america like argentina and chile for a trip of tour of south america now there were several purposes of this one, his son, Kermit, that went on the safari with him. Well, it's a few years later. Kermit is now living in Brazil, and uh, he's actually engaged with a young lady. And so Theodore is like, oh, I should go down and visit my son. So there's one. Two, the main part of it was he was going to give a speaking tour and speak at universities and town halls in Argentina, Uruguay, Chile, and talk about democracy and freedom and all of that kind of stuff, you know, as a former president would. Mm -hmm. And thirdly, 
he had a longtime friend named Father John Augustine Zom, who was doing some like missionary work in that area. And he said, you know what? We've been talking about doing something fun for a long time. Let's take a river cruise on the Amazon River. And Theodore is like, I got time. Sounds like a fun idea. So Roosevelt arrives in Brazil. He's doing his thing. And he meets up with this guy who's a representative of the Brazilian government who says, hey, we have this person here named Candido Rodan, and he is about to go on an expedition to chart the length of this new river that we've discovered. Um, we, we've discovered that it starts here, but we have no idea where it goes through the Amazon. And it's on your way. You're going up to the Amazon anyway to do this river cruise. Would you like to be part of this expedition to map this unknown river? And Theodore Roosevelt was like, hell yeah, I'd like to. Let's do this. So, yeah, he ends up agreeing to chart the course of this river, which was known as the Rio da Duvida which translates to the River of Doubt in Upper Brazil. Oh, that's a great name. It, it's a fantastic name. Uh, but, uh, so yeah, Kermit, you know, he's engaged with a lady. Well, uh, Edith, Theodore's wife and Kermit's mother, basically guilt trips him into postponing the wedding to take care of his father along this trip. Because <laughs> it's like your oh, father. I, I thought you were going to say Edith was going to guilt trip Theodore into holding off or something, but no, no, it's the son's got No, it's like, hey, Kermit, your dad, he's getting old. He wants to go on this, you know, expedition through the unknown Amazon jungle. Uh, would you mind postponing your wedding to take care of him for a few months, please? Thank you. Oh, God. I feel like this is foreshadowing or something. Well, Kermit says, yes, he has to. Mm -hmm. you know. So they, they go. So after Roosevelt finishes his prior engagements with the speaking tour, they begin their course on this journey. They start going up the, they have to first reach the headwaters of the River of Doubt. So, um, you know, they begin this process journey through South America. And all of this part of the expedition would go on into a book that he would later write detailing all that happened. And uh, it would actually go on to be pretty much the most popular book that Theodore Roosevelt would publish. It was the most popular during his lifetime. And it was called Through the Brazilian Wilderness. And I actually read this book as part of preparation for this episode. Um, so, yeah, I'll tell you what happens in this expedition down the river of doubt. Well, I gotta ask first, was it the book that you read before breakfast one day? No, no. It, it was uh, very much a couple of weeks 
Uh, okay, so about Theodore's writing, just in general, he, I mean, it is very much like a journal, so it's a day-by-day, not necessarily a day-by-day, but, you know, oh, we went this far, and then this thing happened, and I went hunting for this animal for our food, you know. It breaks it down very much like that. But outside of that, uh, he spends a lot of time going off on these tangents of, like, oh, they these scientists down in Brazil, you know, in the jungle, there's a lot of dangerous snakes. And here is four or five pages about how they're developing anti-venom from all these different snakes and which ones are the most dangerous and how you can tell them apart. Or he describes what capybaras are like at least three separate times. He's very repetitive, which I found annoying at times because it's like, dude, you've already described this to us. Why are you yeah, doing it again? It's not that you like told us a story and then a week later you told it again. It's like you have this written down. You yeah. Read through to see. And but yeah, he, he goes off on all these tangents of, oh, yeah, the, the these poisonous snakes and. Uh, oh yeah, these insects, and there's this one fly that will give you all of these different diseases, and it's really bad, and um, goes off describing what piranhas are like five different times. And So not only is he describing all these animals, he's also kind of taking snippets from like the his observations of life down in this part of the world. So, like, he's talking about these life on these gigantic plantations that are along these rivers and how it, it's very much like a, I mean, it's a plantation, right? So it's like, oh, they got these big fancy houses and the master of the property took us and had a very nice time and they're working out on the fields and whatnot. He also spends a lot of time in several Native American indigenous villages and communities. And so he describes kind of like during the time he's there, it's like, oh, this is what the people look like. And we had this big feast or whatever. And this is kind of what they were doing, their dances and music. And so, yeah, it, it's a lot of these interesting asides, but it can get repetitive at times. And uh, he does, on occasion, do some unsavory observations about the period of time being that he's in. He uses a lot of like, oh, these savages out or these uncivilized people, you know, which. Oh, yeah, I was waiting for that. I was waiting for that part of it. To he, but... he, he does. He. Oh, it, he very much is like, hey, these are nice people who treat me kind. I treated them fine. Um, they're capable. They're hardworking. They have a beautiful society. But they are savages. They are inherently below civilized people. And they need to be assimilated and civilized. And so it it's this weird dichotomy where he's like, you know, people, they hate on them. They say they're lazy. That's not true. 
but they are naked, which, you know, is a terrible thing. He gets very caught up on their nakedness on several occasions. Um, so, yeah, it, and he says some racist stuff about, he compares the people he meets in South America, the indigenous people, to black Africans that he met on his previous things. Kind of does a little racial hierarchy, which is not fun, but... Yeah, again, not trying to cancel Theodore Roosevelt. That's just what he wrote down, and it's gross, but that's him, I guess. Not much you can expect him to do now that he's dead over 100 years or whatever. So. Yeah, it's part of the history. You gotta you gotta say it. You know, it's not like you're trying to erase history or anything like that. So, just, yeah. you know, like you said, just cataloging all the things, good or bad, whatever. Yeah, just take that what you will. But, yeah, so... With all that aside, his journey. Uh, so, over the course, they would travel from about the time he starts keeping, starts writing about um, down in Paraguay. They would go from the, they'd go up the course of the Paraguay overland to through Brazil to the start of the Rio da Vida. And then their plan was to chart down the course of this river, see where it comes out, eventually meet up with the Amazon, then cruise down the Amazon and go home. So overall, that's about 2,200 miles as the crow flies, just in straight lines. Um, That's a ways. Yeah, that's a good ways, almost across the entire United States, basically. Um, but the first part of his journey up the Paraguay River, that's where he spends a lot of the time talking about, oh, yeah, we stay on these nice plantations and staying in these indigenous communities. And that's where he's making all these observations of the culture and ethnography. Also, as part of this expedition, he decides to hit up uh, the Museum of Natural History in New York City and agrees to start doing some more species collections. So during this part of the journey, he's also going out hunting for jaguars and tapirs and capybaras, you know, doing the regular amount of species collection. Definitely not as much as what he did over in Africa because he's only got a couple of weeks, you know. So yeah, this is only a side, a side yeah. story kind of thing for it. Um, but he does spend a lot of time talking about specific hunting engagements going out. It's like, oh, this was about the time I shot my first jaguar or whatever. Um, so yeah, uh, after they get down the Paraguay River, they eventually trek over land for a bit, but they reach the headwaters of the River of Doubt in February of 1914. And this is where the exciting stuff happens. And so at the headwaters, basically what their plan was is that their huge exploring party would split up into two groups. One group would chart the course of this unknown river, And the other group would go down another river that had already been charted out with all of these, you know, all of the specimens that they've previously collected and all of their 
big, rich, fancy stuff that they don't want to lose in the jungle. And what would happen is this other group would basically speed run down to the Amazon or wherever they expected the river to flow into and wait for them. And while Theodore Roosevelt, uh, Commander Rondon, Kermit, and the smaller party would chart the course of this river and, you know, it would help see, oh, they came out on this side of us and help measure things. But that was the plan. So in total, I think it was 19, including Theodore, Kermit, Rondon, and 16 others, took seven, seven dugout canoes and made their way down the River of Doubt. And he spends a lot of time talking about like the day-to-day stuff, but the main struggles that they encountered were numerous and very detailed, but often it would be whitewater rapids that caused a whole lot of issues for them because they're in dugout canoes. And so the rapids would be so large and so dangerous that Really, their only option was for the crew to unload all of the boats and supplies and carry them over land to the other end of the rapids, which added a lot of time to it. And so that that was their main concern. Uh, Towards the end, they figured out that they could just carry the supplies over and their more experienced paddlers, like Kermit apparently was really good at kayaking or whatever and so he would be able to drive an empty canoe down some of these rapids but they would still have to carry all the supplies over land and so they would lose several days just having to load and unload shit another big concern is uh the threat of starvation because you can't they couldn't necessarily pack all of the food needed at the start of the trip for because they didn't know how long this river was and so they had to factor in hunting and foraging into their total rations but if they got stuck up somewhere for a very long period of time then the threat of them running out of food would increase and so yeah that was a major concern especially towards the end of their journey that we would have to cut rations and yeah, it was not, it was just kind of in the back of their mind. Um, oh, yeah, just any typical, you know, mapping a river. Yeah. You know, part of the, situation. Um, the third was that uh, this one very much was a background threat, but very much real. Um, they were in indigenous territory that, as Theodore would put it, uncivilized people lived. They had they never directly encountered any indigenous people, but as evidenced by later expeditions through the region, if the native people wanted them dead, they very much would have killed them. Um, oh yeah, it's one of those you don't think about it, but yeah, yeah. given the wrong 
Wrong type of standard. Yeah, uh, the closest they got to having some sort of negative interaction was one time while they were out hunting. Basically, one of their hunting dogs started off after something. Turned out that he was trying to attack a native person, so the native person killed the dog and then ran off. So, yeah, sad. But uh, the day before the dog died was actually uh, the day that the first casualty of the expedition occurred. Uh, A man named Simplicio was killed uh, whenever he drowned after his canoe capsized in one of these whitewater rapids. Kermit was in the same boat, and he too almost drowned, but managed to last second grab onto a tree branch overhanging the river and managed to hold on there until others were able to row out to him and get him. Um, so yeah, very, very dangerous. They lost the canoe, of course, um, which would happen several times of them losing canoes, and then they would have to on occasion, stop and spend a couple of days building another canoe in order to hold all their stuff. So yeah, that was about 18, so 18 days into their journey to give you an idea of just how long and how treacherous things could be. 18 days into the journey, Simplicio has died, a dog has died, they have lost four canoes, and they've only traveled 120 kilometers. So, rough. Very rough. Eventually, they developed a strategy towards the midpoint where, hey, we're having to spend a whole lot of time loading and unloading and all of this stuff. What might be simplest is to have most people basically just hike along the river We will send the people doing the surveying with the surveying equipment on the canoes up ahead so that way they can do that work while also scouting ahead to see where the rapids are. And then they can come back and we can coordinate if we need to unload supplies and stuff by that point. But they can go on ahead and everyone else can kind of just keep moving at the constant pace of hiking. Well, this, of course, the lack of boats meant that they would have to abandon some of their already dwindling supplies, which isn't good in any way you paint it, but uh, it also meant that they were having to leave behind supplies that could help them, you know, not get in arguments over food, or um, by this point of the journey... Uh, they discovered that the exotic insects and the diseases that they carried were a very huge problem for everyone, basically. Um, Of course, you have, like, the mosquitoes that can carry malaria, but you also got biting flies, termites, army ants. Basically, everybody in the group had open wounds from bites and stuff that they've been scratching or that just fill up with pus. A couple of men were infected with malaria, so they would be forced to bed rest for several days. Ants and termites would eat their supplies, would even eat the clothes off of them as they slept 
Uh, apparently socks there's several times where he's like the termites ate my socks today you know it was i i guess they're very tasty i don't know but yeah a, a mule that they had at one point ate his undershirt you know they were losing a lot of clothes to animals eating them apparently that's a very random thing to be losing to anything yeah <laughs> but uh so yeah they're, they're making their way down they're struggling but they're making their way down the river on march 22nd they managed to reach the end of the river of doubt they ended up getting into another river that wasn't on any maps that they had so they had not only had they charted the course of this new river they had discovered a completely unknown river in the Amazon that they would now have to go down in order to meet up with the other group. Mm-hmm. Well, they, they decided to take a break for like a day to mark the ceremony of charting the Rio da Duvida. And in the ceremony, uh, Commander Rondon, uh, the representative of the Brazilian government, he actually announces that they are giving the river a new name. And they named it the Rio Roosevelt after TR. All right. All right. Yeah, pandering much, but sure, sure. Roosevelt did not like this. He he thought that having, you know, it wasn't his expedition necessarily. And he thought that the River of Doubt is a very good name for a river. And uh, he, you know, they asked him, "Is like, oh, you know, what do you think about naming the river after you? And he's like, the River of Doubt's a good enough name, man. Don't name it after me. But they did anyways. And um, they named another river along the journey, the Rio Kermit. So he got something out of it, too, I guess. Yeah, okay. But, uh, yeah, so they reached this new river. And so... They decided that they had to go down and chart its course as well, because they might as well. They're already going that way. Well, this unknown river also has a bunch of rapids, which cause the group to proceed slowly. But as a whole, this portion of the journey was relatively easier to the previous portion. But it was also through this stretch that one of the most dramatic incidents on the trip occurred. So there is one member of this group. His name was Julio. Nobody liked him. He was <laughs> uh, he was a European who had joined this expedition, kind of like seeking adventure. Um, but this journey was a lot less glamorous than he had initially expected. And this did not translate well into his attitude. And interactions with the rest of the group. Uh, And so in his struggle, Julio got in the habit of stealing food from other people's rations. And as they would be gathering food out in the jungle, he would eat the food as he was gathering. And so then for wouldn't bring as much back to the rest, which isn't good. (laughs) No. No. Um, but yeah, on one occasion, 
a man by the name of Pichon, who was a corporal in the engineer corps for Brazil. So he was a higher ranking member of the group. Well, he caught Julio stealing red-handed and, as such, punches him in the face. That's fair. I, mean, I feel like that's fair. Well... No objections there. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, Julio then goes and crybabies and complains to the rest of the group, Oh, Pichon punched me in the face! What are you gonna guys do about it? It really hurt. And everyone basically acted like you did. Like, well, you got what you deserve. <laughs> Pichon was right to punch you, and you're glad he ch- didn't do anything more. Yeah. Um. So yeah, I I don't I didn't understand why Julio felt that he could go complain, considering that Pichon was a little bit higher up. But um. Yeah, I, I I didn't really understand the dynamics of that, other than maybe it was because Pichon was black and there's some racist element to it, but I don't know. That was, I didn't really understand that interaction of him going to complaining. Yeah. Well, I also think that some people like that, like you were saying, he it wasn't as glamorous as he wanted, and he kind of was trying to take what it from he could get, take from it what he could get. Mm-hmm. And so, like, he might have just been oblivious that he was not liked. Yeah. And, you know, he probably trying to spin it to save himself, too. Like, oh, I didn't do anything. I don't know why he would do this. Yeah. You know, just trying to make sure that he didn't have any. Well, of course, you know, I punched him because he stole. It's like, no, why he punched me for no reason. Mm-hmm. Well, I guess. Anyways, Julio got the shit kicked out of him. Justly so. Well, literally the next day. Another guy catches Julio stealing again, like literally less than 24 hours later. He's like, dude, you're stealing from my rations. Stop. And so then P. Sean basically goes like, dude, you need to stop or else I'm really going to kick your ass. You know, well, Julio did not like this. So a couple hours later. They're moving their supplies through the jungle because there's a rapid, as they have been doing. And in part of this going back and forth, carrying and dropping off supplies, uh, Pichon basically goes up and, I mean, he, he has his gun, you know, but he sets it down and goes to get more supplies. Well, Julio takes Pichon's gun and kills Pichon. As they're trekking, as they're trekking through the forest, uh, Julio shoots Pichon in the back, and then runs off. Well, of course, that's you know not good. Uh, Where do you think you're going? Like, is he running away from the group, or is he trying? Like, what are you trying to get away from? Yeah, I mean, it's just like uh, Roosevelt writes that it must have just been like a total coward thing. He's just like, oh shit, I actually did that oh shit, now I'm going to be in trouble, I gotta run. And so the group yeah, looks for him for a few hours, but they they don't find him, and so they go back on their way. Um, and uh, a, a few hours, so they go back down the river, but a few hours down the river, um, 
they see Pichon, I mean, they see Julio on the banks of the river, and he's like, come on, guys, let me on. I'm sorry I did that, you know. You can arrest me, whatever. Um, but the group doesn't let him go with them. They just leave him. Um, be- I mean, yeah, he's probably going to shoot somebody else. Yeah, because, like, legally, they couldn't execute execute Julio because, you know, he has to have, like, a trial and whatnot. But they were too far away from civilization that it's too tricky to keep this guy arrested because you can't keep him in handcuffs whenever you're in the river going down these rapids because then he might drown. Okay, well, we got a lot of guns around. We can't, you know, okay, we have to keep him under guard. Well, then we have to force someone to stay up all night watching him. It, the logistics of it were just too complicated. So they yeah, left. The rule of law says, says arrest him. The rule of the jungle says eh. Yeah, and so they... They left Julio in the jungle, and uh, he was never seen again. So, but, uh, so yeah, that was a dramatic episode, to say the least. Um, But their journey was nearing an end. They reached the, they reached civilization on April 15th. Um, They found a rubber plantation on the other side of this unknown river. In total, they had been traveling alone for 48 days and had gone over 300 kilometers. They only had two of the original seven canoes left. The others they had built up along the way. Oh, yeah. And at this point, both Kermit and Theodore Roosevelt had fever, what we would understand to be malaria. And they were both pretty down bad with it. It was, they were not healthy. Kermit was initially more severe, but he eventually recovered. Theodore, however, he was sick for a much longer period of time. A couple other people on the crew had dysentery. Several others had just like, like I was saying, open wounds from bug bites and whatnot. Oh yeah, some stuff. Well, in addition to Theodore being sick with malaria, he had also really badly injured one of his legs and it had developed an abscess, which basically kept him from walking. And given his multiple injuries, his age, um, And the fact that his son was also sick, Theodore basically was telling the doctor, you know what, stop giving me the malaria medicine, Uh, give it to my son, make sure he's healthy. If I die, you know, if you have to choose between the two of us, pick Kermit. Well, Kermit was basically like, Dad, if you die, you're the president of the United States. We can't leave you here in the jungle. So if you're going to be more of a burden to get back home as a dead body. So stay alive, please. And so, (laughs) and so he did, but yeah, he, he stayed alive for his son. They made it to New York city. Roosevelt was received heroes. Welcome, you know, big celebrity having done this glorious thing, but he never 
fully recovered from this experience. And How old was he at this point? Like mid-50s, I guess? So it was 1914. He was 50 in 1909. So, yeah, so mid, mid-50s in the early 1900s. Yeah. Out in the middle of nowhere for 50 days. Uh, yeah. And he's also kind of a big guy, you know. He's, he's not small. Yeah. yeah. He did not ever fully recover. And even, but despite this huge celebration, um, initially upon his return, there was actually uh, a bit of skepticism that Theodore actually did all of the stuff that he said he did. Because it's like, oh, okay. Did you really discover this unknown river in the middle of the Amazon? And did you really chart the course of all this? You know, he, some people wanting to be uppity about it or whatever, I guess, didn't like. Oh, yeah. They questioned it. Well, Theodore did not like people doubting him. And so on May 26, 1914, like just a couple of weeks, you know, very soon after they arrived, um, they like it. It, it was ugh, what am I saying? <laughs> uh, so, so, like, just a few weeks after he arrived in New York City, and people are still questioning him and stuff, he arranges to speak to the National Geographic Society in Washington, D.C., and basically, like, here's all the shit I. Went through word for word. I'm going to give you all the details. That way you know I'm not making any of this stuff up. And he he is barely... He basically has to whisper this entire thing because he is so physically weak. But less than a month later, he's traveling over to London to do the same thing for like their scientific society or whatever. And that quieted most people down. But um, it wasn't until 1927 whenever another explorer was able to independently confirm Theodore Roosevelt's claims like, oh yeah, there is this unknown river here and all that stuff, which, you know, made everything quiet down. But yeah, it it was a journey to say the least. And Theodore, he would die less than five years later in his sleep having never fully recovered. And there's a quote about Theodore from Woodrow Wilson's vice president, Thomas Marshall. And I was hoping you would bring up this quote. Yeah. So so you've probably seen the painting or uh, the meme or whatever too, right? Oh, yes. Yes, yes, yes. So for those who aren't aware, uh, the quote from the vice president was that Quote, death had to take Roosevelt sleeping, for if he had been awake, there would have been a fight. And uh, I think that is exactly true. But uh, the meme to which Ryan and I are referring to is this very funny image of the Grim Reaper standing over a bed and Theodore, he like pulls over the sheets and it's just like you leave a pillow for your fake sleeping, whatever. Mm hmm. And, uh, yeah, it's just, you see the glint of Theodore Roosevelt's glasses behind him, just like, oh, shit. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's pretty funny. 
But yeah, that's uh, some of the lesser known tales of Theodore Roosevelt. And what do you think? Very interesting. I, yeah, like I said I, before, I really had not heard much of outside of his presidency, like what kind of stuff he he did. And none of that surprised me. Like it, it's very on on character, you know. Yeah, on brand. Of his character to go with it, but all very on brand. But yeah, I hadn't heard of any of that other stuff, so very interesting. Yeah. All right. All right. What do you think? Do you want to go down an uncharted river together? To prove a point, or uh, I I was afraid what you were gonna say whenever you mentioned that he got back to New York City and a few weeks later he went to like the Geographical Society. I thought you were about to say he took a boat back down there or something. And I was like, <laughs> he's like, man. like, bitch, I'll do it again. <laughs> yeah, I, I fully expected at least like a yeah. I'm gonna go talk to to some other group to get them to do another you know another survey or something and like confirm, but. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, but yeah, the the river. Uh, I think it was Theodore Roosevelt's grandson. He actually, like in the nineties, recreated the journey and like brought cameras down and charted the course of the river. And uh, that's kind of cool. And uh, the river is still called the Rio Roosevelt, uh, but apparently that's kind of hard to say with a Brazilian accent. So. Most people call it the Rio Teodoro, which is Theodore in Portuguese, I guess. But yeah, okay, all right. But yeah, that's uh, the big stick guy, you know. The big stick man. So uh, very, very yeah. But like I said, very on-brand behavior from what I fully expected from a from that man. Yeah, yeah. So. I guess that'll be the end of it. Hopefully the listener enjoyed the topic. If you did, please tell your friends about us. We always love new listeners. I put some sources, you know, down in the show notes. If you want to do a little deeper diving into the subjects brought up, our instrumental music is by Mountaineer. You can find their music on upbeat.io. As always, we want to acknowledge that we are recording this podcast on occupied land that rightfully belongs to the Kiowa, Comanche, Tonkwa, as well as other indigenous peoples. If you have any questions, suggestions, or... (laughs) If you have any questions, suggestions for future episodes, or you just want to say hi, (laughs) you can reach out to us at History Spelunkers. That's history, S-P-E-L-U-N-K-E-R-S at gmail.com. Thanks for listening, and thanks for coming down the rabbit hole with us. Until next time, bye-bye. See you